We're currently making our way through the Psalter, looking at sort of the highlights of the Psalms, uh, particular Psalms that have uh, been uh, effective in the life of the church and in, 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 in not only in, in singing praises to our God, but also as a means of, of praying to our God. And as you may have noticed by this point in time that many of these psalms that we are considering in our, in our sermons are also psalms that we pray in other portions of our liturgy. And so this morning we come to Psalm 90, and you'll notice that this psalm is a psalm that's attributed to Moses. Uh, Moses is said to have, have written this psalm as one of his prayers before his God. So please turn your attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word, Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger? And your wrath according to the fear of you. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, I grew up, <clears throat> excuse me, I grew up in a, a small community in the Midwest that, that was tied together by two main threads. On the one hand, there was the thread of a common German heritage, but uh, the other thread was a common faith, and in that community, it was a, a common Catholic faith. And about a mile from where I grew up, there was the, the local church, the local Catholic church that stood as the center of this very small town. And it was a beautiful church, traditional architecture. You had the, the tall tower and steeple, and you, as you walk in, you have the towering nave with the high-pitched ceilings. 
the stained glass windows, a church that was built at the turn of the 20th century by likely my great-grandparents and many of, of my neighbors' grandparents and great-grandparents. Well, across the street from this church stands a cemetery. And in this uh, cemetery, uh, I have buried there my, my grandma and my grandpa, their parents and their grandparents. So three generations buried in this local cemetery. And this is not unique to my family. Many of, of my neighbors growing up also had multiple generations in this one cemetery that stood across from the local parish church. Thus, as, as congregants, as parishioners would, would go to church each Sunday, they would be reminded of the two most important realities that we are to keep in the forefront of our minds. Now, today, congregants may not be reminded of these things, but at least historically, this is what people would be reminded of as they would go to church and catch a glimpse of the cemetery. They'd be reminded of the reality of death. They'd be reminded of the brevity of life, how today we're here and tomorrow we're gone. As they look upon this plot of land that holds the remains of, of parents, grandparents, and even great-grandparents, they know that they will soon join them in that cemetery. But they also would be reminded of the existence of God as they behold this, this beautiful church. They would be reminded of the transcendence and eternality of God as they look upon the, the, the towering ceilings that exist within within this church, but then as their minds go forward to the center of the church and they see a pulpit and a table, they will be reminded that God has condescended to us in Christ and has made a way for us to escape this sin-cursed world. Thus, the practice of enjoining a cemetery next to a church is not merely a morbid practice of traditional churches in a bygone era, Rather, it's a vivid reminder of the mission of the church. The church's mission, at least historically speaking, has been to prepare people for death. This was expressed through a Latin phrase in the Middle Ages as the ars moriende, the art of dying, or the art of dying well. The mission of the church was to help people die well. And now here in this psalm, Moses is giving us a glimpse both of the cemetery and of the church. He's reminding us of the brevity of life. He's reminding us of the toilsome nature of life. But he's also reminding us of the eternality of God and the grace of God who has made a provision for us in Christ. And so we're going to look at both of these both of these viewpoints that Moses gives us, and then we'll conclude by considering how Moses instructs us in, in how we are to live in light of these two realities. How are we to live in light of the reality of uh, uh, impending death that is coming for each and every one of us? And how are we to live in light of the fact that there's a God, an eternal God, who's entered into space and time for us and for our salvation? So first, I'd like us to consider this glimpse of the cemetery that Moses gives us. Now, you'll notice that the title of this psalm says that Moses wrote this psalm. This is a prayer of Moses. 
Now, you may know that Moses also is attributed uh, to writing the, the first five books of the Old Testament. Moses is said to have, have written Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, what's sometimes referred to as a Torah. Now, some have, have looked at this psalm and concluded that Psalm 90, in many ways, is sort of Moses' meditation upon Genesis 1 through 3. There are many similarities between what he says here in this prayer before his God and what Moses also says in Genesis 1 through 3. So, for instance, if you look with me at verse 3 of Psalm 90, uh, Moses says, uh, You return man to dust and say, Retur Return, O children of man. Now, what does this sound like? Well, it sounds like the very beginning of our Bibles, right after Adam and Eve rebel against their God. We read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, God says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Part of God's curse upon mankind is that dust is our destiny. We all are going to die. It's a reality that our culture doesn't really want us to think about. Uh, our culture sort of lives as if death isn't a reality. We're just going to be young forever. But death is coming for every single one of us. This is a reality because of that curse from Genesis chapter 3. If we're honest with ourselves, we already experience the decay of our bodies. We all have something in our bodies that, that doesn't, doesn't work as, as, as it should. We all have aches and pains, afflictions. And if you think you don't, it's just a matter of time. Your body will break down. Or it, ha it already has broken down. Our minds also don't work as they should. When you think about the, the, the topic of mental illness, many people experience a life in such a way that in their mind, in their head, it feels as if the world is going to end tomorrow. But if you look at their life from an objective perspective, it seems as if the sun is shining, the birds are chirping. There doesn't really seem to be anything radically wrong with their life. However, they're experiencing life in their head as if it's going to end tomorrow. It's a very disorienting experience. Our minds don't work as they should. Well, Moses continues as he speaks about the brevity of life in this sin-cursed world. As he says in verses 5 and 6, he compares us, human beings, to grace, uh, grass excuse me, that fades. In the ancient Near East, where Moses is writing from, it was, it was uh, typical for grass to, to, to be vibrant and green in the winter and in the spring. But then when summer came around, it dried up. And this is the image that Moses uses when he thinks about the brevity of our life in this world. We're like grass, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, as Jesus says. How many of you know your great-grandparents? If you do, how much do you know about them? Probably not a lot. And that's just, you know what? two generations in between you and your, your great-grandparents. Now, the reality is, is we all are going to be forgotten 
by everybody, even our own family, within two or three generations. I think this is especially the case in the world in which we now inhabit. Individuals who live in communities, the same communities that their parents lived in, that their grandparents lived in, that their great-grandparents lived in, even individuals in those contexts don't know a whole lot about their great-grandparents. Let, uh, let alone a world in which each generation is moving to different states halfway across the country. In two to three generations, you're going to be completely forgotten by everybody. This is life. And this has been the existence of virtually every person who has lived. Very few people are remembered through the corridors of history. And Moses is trying to communicate this point as he compares us to the fleeting nature of grass. We think our life is so important that we're, we're building this great legacy, but in reality, we're going to be forgotten. We're like grass that today is alive and tomorrow is withered up and dead. Well, Moses continues on, as you see in verse 10, as he speaks to life in this world. He says, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Again, what does this sound like? Well, this sounds just like Genesis chapter 3, 17 through 19, when God comes to the man and he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Moses is reflecting upon that, that curse that God issued to, to Adam at the very beginning. Toil and trouble, thorns and thistles, these are the things that mark our vocations, our pursuits, our work in this age. And we know this, we know this uh, deeply as we live our lives in this present fallen evil age. Now as I mentioned, many, many believe that, that Moses is reflecting upon, meditating upon Genesis 1-3 through 3 as he's composing this psalm. But Moses also is speaking from experience. Moses doesn't just know that there's a common curse uh, because of, of what he's recorded, uh, you know, as, as information has been passed down to the, him when he wrote Genesis 1 through 3. He knows about the common curse from experience. Remember the bio biography of Moses. This is the one whom God raised up to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. And Moses may be writing this psalm during those wilderness years. When Israel is constantly rebelling and grumbling and complaining against Moses and against God. Why, Moses, have you led us out, to, led us out into the wilderness only to die? We would have been better off in Egypt. And because of Moses' sin, because of Israel's sin, that's what happens. They die in the wilderness. Everybody 20 years old and older die in the wilderness. Think about how depressing this would be if you were Moses. You have this mission, you have this plan, you are God's leader to bring the people of God from Egypt to the promised land. And people are constantly uh, complaining against you, constantly questioning your decisions. And the result of their complaining is what happens. They, they die in the wilderness. 
Moses' own family members die right before him. Moses and Miriam, the people whom he was tasked to lead, are dying one by one. Moses has experienced this psalm, the brevity of life. He's experienced his secret sins in the light of God's presence. He's experienced God's wrath and punishment that he invoked because of his transgressions and rebellion. Moses is speaking from his own experience. And in so doing, he's giving us a glimpse of the cemetery, a very sober view of life. Now, this is all quite depressing. And so thankfully, uh, Moses uh, uh, switches tone here as he now gives us a glimpse of the church. Now, again, if you walk into any traditional church that has you know, traditional architecture, uh, you will likely see some a tall tower steeple that is, a front, is in the front of the church. As you walk in, you'll have these high-pitched ceilings, again, which communicates transcendence. When you walk into churches like this, you feel as if you're walking into the presence of a transcendent, eternal God. And Moses here is describing this kind of God, a transcendent and eternal God. So again, if you look with me at verse 2, Moses says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From eternity to eternity, you are God, Moses says. And what does this remind you of? It should remind us of the first verse of our Bibles. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Moses is saying that before there were mountains, before there was the sea, before there was uh, an earth or galaxies, before there even was matter or time itself, there was just God. God is the only eternal being, meaning God is the only one who has no beginning. He just is. And consequently, God has no end. This is why Moses can proclaim from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You exist out of, out of the context of, of time itself. When God looks upon time, he looks upon it as, as another part of his handiwork, just as he looks upon the mountains or the sea or us as human beings. Which again is why he can say, Moses can say of God, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. And watching the night is, is a, roughly th- a three-hour time span. So boys and girls, when God looks upon uh, the period of a thousand years, I mean, think about wh- what it was like a thousand years ago. It's the Middle Ages, times of castles and knights and kings and queens. You wouldn't even be able to understand English a thousand years ago. And God looks upon a period of a thousand years, and it's like a three-hour watch in the night. Our God is an eternal God. Not only does he not have a beginning, and not only does he not have an end, but our God also is not subject to the succession of moments. He's not subject to time. Time does not act upon God. We, of course, are historical beings. Every moment in which we live, we have a past, and we are experiencing a present, and we're looking forward to a future. And every moment in which the present becomes the past, the, the present becomes the past, 
The future becomes the present, and a new future arrives on the horizon. We change. Time acts upon us. We're constantly evolving. We are becoming. For those of you who are married, your spouse today is not the same spouse that you married five years, ten years, twenty years plus years ago. You are not the same person you were yesterday, last year, five years from now. We are constantly changing as we're experiencing the succession of moments. This is part of the reason why life in this world feels so unstable. Because we're constantly living in a world of flux. Things are changing and we can't get the past back. Well, not so with God. God is not acted upon by time. God is not a better God for us than he was for Moses because he has thousands of years of experience in between. God is the same. He's the same God as he was to Moses as he is to us. For us, that would be true. We're better uh, parents. We're better at our job the more experience that we have. Not so with God. And this is what Moses is saying when he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout the generations. Generations come and go. But our God remains the same. He remains a solid and stable refuge and dwelling place for his people to anchor themselves to in a world full of flocks. This is what Moses is confessing. The author of Hebrews says very much the same thing when he says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God in whom we trust is, is the same God. He's, this God is the God who was, he's the God who is, he's the God who will be. This is the confidence, this is the stability that we can have in this life as we experience so much change, not only in ourselves, but in every part of this creation. Well, as Moses speaks about the eternality of God, he, he speaks about this attribute as a means of comfort. Again, notice how he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout the generations. Moses is looking to the eternality of God as a means of comfort and a means of stability as he looks around him and sees death, as he sees judgment, as he sees unfulfilled hopes and expectations in his own life. He looks to God and his eternal nature. Now think about how God has been a dwelling place throughout the generations. Think about Adam. God is a God who, yes, is eternal, but he condescends in space and time to be a refuge for his people. He comes to Adam, and he gives Adam promises. He clothes Adam with the skins of dead animals, assuring Adam of his goodwill towards him. Think about Noah. God preserves Noah and his family through this ark that God provided for him. And you think about Abraham. God comes to Abraham and calls him out of a life of paganism. God comes to Abraham and gives him promises and promises upon the pain of his own death, which is in itself impossible, that he will bring about these promises. And he assures Abraham by passing through the pieces of dead animals. Think about Isaac and how God provided a ram as a substitute so that Abraham's one and only son would not have to be sacrificed on that altar. You think about Jacob, this deceitful, crooked, rebellious individual who receives a blessing from God 
God comes to him and says, yes, I will bring about my promises that I gave to your father and his father. Think about Moses and the people of Israel. God established this tabernacle in their midst so that he could dwell among them. God has been a dwelling place throughout Israel's history. Of course, this theme, this theme of our eternal God condescending to us in space and in time is fulfilled in the incarnation of Christ. Think about what God did in sending his son. Our eternal God subjected himself to the succession of moments in the flesh of Christ. God sent forth his son into this world, into time and space for us and for our salvation. This is how God is our refuge and our strength in the most supreme way. And so we are called to find our refuge, find our dwelling place in this God, this eternal God who's condescended to us in the Incarnation. It's this truth that allows us not to become uh, disillusioned. Not, uh, this, this, this truth that causes us not to become discouraged and weighed down as we look around ourselves and see the brevity of life, as we see uh, evidences of that common curse, as we experience the vanity of work in this world. What allows us to keep moving forward with joy is this truth that we have a God who is our dwelling place and refuge. Imagine if you're hiking and you're in the midst of a storm, a rainstorm, even a blizzard, and you come across a cabin that has a warm fire, even food. You'd be running to that cabin as a safe haven. Do you view your relationship with God as that warm cabin in the midst of a turbulent world? The New Testament describes us as Christians as pilgrims and exiles, living and travailing through a foreign and alien land. And God is our oasis. He is our refuge. He is our strength as he has condescended to us in Christ. Again, this is communicated in, 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 our, in the architecture of, of many churches and cathedrals as you see a testimony of the transcendence of God and, and the nave and the high-pitched ceilings. But then your eyes come to focus upon the front of the church where you see a table and a pulpit which is evidence that God has condescended to us in Christ through the means of word and sacrament. And so it's this truth that Moses is assuring us of as he gives us a glimpse uh, of the church that this eternal God is our refuge and our strength. Well, if you look with me at verse 12, Moses transitions here as he says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Moses essentially is saying, you know, how, how do we live? in light of these two realities, in light of the brevity of life and in light of the eternality of our God. How do we live fruitful lives, cognizant of these two most important realities? Moses says it takes wisdom. He's praying that God would give him a heart of wisdom, that he may live a fruitful path in between the cemetery and the church. And what, what kind of wisdom do we need? What kind of wisdom do we need to live fruitful lives in the here and now? Well, you'll see in verses 13 and 14 that 
Moses makes these petitions to his God. He says, have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. And then verse 17, he says again, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Moses here is not only saying, uh, petitioning God to be favorable to him, but he's particularly asking that God would allow him and his people to experience the grace of God. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. If, we, if we're honest with ourselves, we long not only to know cognitively of God's grace, but we long to experience God's favor in our souls. We long to be satisfied with his love and acceptance of us in Christ. We long to be satisfied with this heavenly inheritance that has been granted to us through the work of Jesus Christ more than we are satisfied with the opinion of others or earthly riches. We long for that satisfaction. We long to find our ultimate joy, joy that goes to our bones in God and his redemption of us through the mediator, Jesus Christ. We long for this. And Moses says we are to pray to this end, that we wouldn't just know of the grace of God, that we wouldn't just know of God's favor, but that we'd be satisfied by it, that we'd experience it. And Moses continues in verse 16 as he petitions God. He says, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Uh, for those of you here who are parents, for those of you here who are grandparents, is this not your greatest desire? That God's glorious power might be made known to your children and your children's children. Uh, recently, we, uh, Mackenzie and I both have, have had our grandma's visit. And interestingly, both of them commented to us separately that they can't imagine raising a child in today's world. And it's true. The world in which our children um, inhabit or will inhabit is, and grandchildren is a world that's really unknown. It's foreign to previous generations. However, we can be confident as we face this, this new world because of God's promise to us. Remember what God told Abraham thousands of years ago. I'm a God to you and to your children for an everlasting covenant. When our eternal God makes promises, he, he stands behind those promises. And our God promises to be a God to us and to our children and therefore, we can be confident that God will continue to make his saving power known to future generations. But we are called to pray toward that, to that end. We are called to pray that the Lord will continue to build his church in each and every generation. And so we are called to be a people who live wise lives. In between the cemetery and the church, we are called to be a people who long to experience the grace of God in our hearts and souls and pray that future generations would do so as well. So let us pray. Merciful Father, we thank you for uh, your word, and we thank you for your, the, the psalms that uh, speak to us in, in a way that, that um, 
expresses many of the emotions that we ourselves oftentimes feel. And we, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for the realistic view of life that it gives us. But we also thank you for the comfort that it gives us as it points to your eternal nature. But more than that, it points to how you as an eternal God have become our dwelling place and refuge through Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us a heart of wisdom, heart of wisdom to navigate life in this fallen world, that you would allow us to uh, be able to